Hi team, this week we are reading chapter three in your book, The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact. This book was written by Chip and Dan Heath. Chapter three is called Building Peaks. If you remember, last week we read the second half of chapter two, which was learning about pits and then understanding the difference between milestones, transitions, and pit moments. Chapter three, build peaks. You are a sophomore at Hillsdale High School, a public school in San Mateo, California. In your history class, you've been studying the rise of fascism, World War II, and the Holocaust. Meanwhile, in English, you're reading William Golding's Lord of the Flies, which tells the story of a group of boys who are marooned on an island, detached from the stabilizing influences of society and culture, they revert to the state of savagery. Golding said that he wrote the novel partly as a reaction to the brutality he observed during his service in World War II. The book was his, quote, attempt to trace the defects of society back to the defects of human nature, end quote. One day in English, your class is discussing a part of the novel where violence breaks out amongst the boys, but then the conversation is interrupted. To your surprise, you're handed an official-looking legal complaint. The document announces that William Golding has been accused of libel for grossly misrepresenting human nature in his portrayal of the boys. You and your classmates will conduct Golding's trial. Each of you will choose a role, the witness, the attorney, or the judge. The trial will hinge on big, proactive questions. Was Golding right that human nature is defective? Is civilization just a veneer over a violent core? This event takes place every year for sophomores at Hillsdale High and has become known as the Trial of Human Nature, or the Golding Trial. You and your classmates will have about two months to prepare. Then, when the day comes, you'll ride a school bus to an actual courtroom and conduct the trial in front of a jury made up of Hillsdale teachers and alumni. A gallery full of your peers and parents will watch the action. As one of the attorneys, you will call famous witnesses from history and literature, people who have a strong opinion about the true nature of humanity, good or bad. Some predictable figures that will take the stand, such as Hitler, Hobbes, Gandhi, and Mother Teresa, but the witnesses will also include some surprises, Jane Goodall, Mark Twain, Darth Vader, and even Tupac. All of them will be impersonated in costume by your fellow students who will have diligently researched and rehearsed their testimonies on the question of human nature. Over the years, many juries have convicted Golding. Many have freed him, 
It's up to you what will happen this time. The Trial of Human Nature was created in 1989 by Greg Gerles, a social studies teacher in his third year, and Susan Bedford, an English teacher with 20 years of experience. They didn't know each other well until the time their students complained that both teachers had picked the same due date for a major assignment. That got them talking and they realized they had a lot in common. For one thing, both had grown delusioned with teaching uh, and were struggling with whether they wanted to continue. I had fallen into the te English teacher's rut of read the novel, talk about it, and take a test, Bedford said. I was looking for something that would reignite the spark that I felt at the beginning of my career. They also craved something for their students, and as they taught, they came to a disturbing realization. Even though high school students log more time in the classroom than anywhere else, their most memorable experiences rarely take place there. Instead, they remember prom, football games, musical productions, student body elections, swim meets, and talent shows. Both teachers then asked themselves a question that would guide the rest of their careers. What if we could design an academic experience that was as memorable as prom? Think about that question. They wanted to build a peak moment, one as memorable as prom, the night when teenagers rent stretch limos and vomit on each other. That's a tall order. They also wanted to experience, they also wanted the experience to draw on some of the great themes of their courses, including the, a basic mystery they share. What is humanity's true nature? Inspiration struck when our history teacher came across an account of someone conducting a mock trial of Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, who killed his brother Abel. The mock trial format seemed perfect. It would be different, dramatic, and unpredictable. We purposely tried to think about ways to up the ante, said Bedford, to give the experience more challenge, more value, and to ask kids to stretch themselves in ways that virtually all of them had never stretched themselves before. In the first year of the trial, they raised the stakes by inviting the principal of the school and the captain of the football team, among other Hillsdale celebrities, to join the jury. They wanted their students to feel the challenge of performing in front of the school's power players. As the weeks of preparation unfolded, both teachers felt some pressure of their own. If they failed, they would fail with the principal observing them firsthand. We were both going through the same thing with kids that kids were going through, said Bedford. I would never have said I'm a risk taker. Their confidence grew as they saw how seriously the students were taking their task. There was intensity and excitement and engagement and extra work 
that we never asked for. Kids were coming in after school just to do more. The students never asked, how many points is this worth, said Bedford. That's always the first question out of a student's mouth, but they never asked it. And we thought, whoa, we've hooked into something powerful here. In its first year, the trial was far from smooth. Some witnesses were brilliant, others woefully underprepared, and others shaken by nerves. But the spectacle was unforgettable. Witnesses taking their place in a genuine superior court witness stand. Student attorneys wearing suits, watching a cross-examination of, uh, sorry, Student attorneys wearing suits making oral arguments in front of an audience. Observers are watching cross-examination of Gandhi. It was extraordinary. When the verdicts came down not guilty, the kids burst into cheers and applause. After the trial, Jurls watched a student who had never shown much interest in the classroom bounding down the hall like he just hit a game-winning shot. That was great. What are we going to do next, he thought. Since then, the trial of human nature has become an institution at Hillsdale High. The fall of 2017 will see the 29th consecutive trial. The two teachers created at creating an academic event as memorable as prom. In fact, even more memorable, uh, some students believed that it was just that, more memorable than prom. As Drills said with no little pride, in every graduation speech I've ever heard, the trial has been mentioned. I've never heard prom mentioned once. The spirit of the trial was contagious. A group of other teachers at Hillsdale High got sick of hearing their senior class students year after year reminisce about how memorable the trial was. A bit of professional jealousy kicked in. They wanted their own peak experience for seniors, so they created the Senior Exhibition, which challenged students to design their own research project develop it over the course of the year, and then prepare for a final oral defense of their work in the spring. Topics ranged from magical realism to anorexia to the future of nuclear fusion. Many parents attended the oral defense sessions. Their pride was obvious. I think it's very rare for parents to see their students work, said Jeff Gilbert one of the creators of the senior exhibition, and now the principal of Hillsdale High. They see swim meets, they see dance performances, and they come to see plays, but it's very rare that parents see the academic work their kids do. School needs to be so much more like sports, he added. In sports, there is a game, and it's in front of an audience. We run school like it's nonstop practice. You never get a game. Nobody would go out for the basketball team if they never got to play. What is the game for the students? That's thinking in moments. 
In essence, Gilbert is asking, where's the peak? With sports, games provide peaks. We might depict a school athlete's experience in a graph like the one shown on the next page, mapping a student's level of enthusiasm over the course of a week with the three practices, all a drag, dipping below the middle line and the game rising high above it as the peak that makes the sacrifice worthwhile. With school, though, there is a flatness to the experience. Final exams might create pits, but in general, day-to-day -day emotions are pretty even. In the trial of human nature, and, or the senior exhibition adds a peak to that flat line. Note that, it's, that this isn't costless. The time and energy invested in the trial of human nature had to come from somewhere. Both teachers sacrificed some of their free time, and it's likely they invested somewhat less time in other lessons in order to focus on the trial. Is this sacrifice worth it? Almost certainly, yes. Recall the mantra about great service expectations from the first chapter, quote, mostly forgettable and occasionally remarkable, end quote. That mantra applies to school experience and life experience as well. The occasionally remarkable moments shouldn't be left to chance. They should be planned for and invested in. They are peaks that should be built. And if we fail to do that, looking at what we're left with is mostly forgettable. There are more than 35,000 high schools in the United States. How many of them have even one academic experience that compares to the trial of human nature? Our high schools, which were excellent public schools, certainly did it yours. While mostly forgettable experiences are disappointing in school and in our personal lives, they can look quite different in the business world. Here's hoping that your experiences are mostly forgettable with companies that provide you with power, water, cable, internet, shipping, gasoline, plumbing, and dental care. That would be a success, wouldn't it? Because in many customer relationships, the moments most likely to be remembered are pits. The cable goes out. The toilet backs up. The hygienist flosses you a little too aggressively. In other words, mostly forgettable is actually a desirable state in many businesses. It means nothing went wrong and you got what you expected. Think of it as the first stage of a successful customer experience. First, you feel the pits. That in turn frees, up, frees you up to focus on the second stage, creating moments that will make the experience occasionally remarkable. Build the pits, then build the peaks. What's striking, though, is that many business leaders never pivot to the second stage. 
Instead, having filled the pits in their service, they scrambled to have or to pave the potholes. The minor problems and annoyances. It's as though the leaders aspire to create a compliment-free service rather than an extraordinary one. Take the Magic Castle Hotel as an example. If the hotel lacked hot water, that would be a pit. And until it was filled, guests would not be charmed by the popsicles. In the hotel industry, delighting your get your guests is an unattainable goal until you provide the basics. Reasonably quick check-in, reasonably attractive rooms, reasonably comfortable beds, and so on. But some customers are still going to complain. The lamp wasn't bright enough. You didn't have HBO. There were no gluten-free Pop-Tarts on the snack menu. In service businesses, there are a huge number of potholes to fix. And that's why executives can get trapped in an endless cycle of complaint management. They're always playing defense and never switch to offense. The Magic Castle leaders played offense. They don't try to make everything perfect, but they nail the moments that stay with you. General Manager Darren Ross is always encouraging employees to go for the moments that take, that make a customer's jaw drop. In one case, a couple came back to the hotel one night, raving to a staff member about a cocktail they had at a local bar. The next day, after they returned to their room from sightseeing, they were astonished by the gift that was waiting for them. The staffer had tracked down the cocktail recipe from the bar and bought all the ingredients so they could make their own. That's what playing offense can look like. Studies have consistently shown that reliability, dependability, and competence meet customers' expectations, said a service expert, Leonard Berry, who is also a professor at Texas A&M University to exceed customer expectations and create a memorable experience, you need the behavioral and interpersonal parts of the service. You need the element of pleasant surprise. And that comes when human beings interact. Here's the surprise though. Most service executives are ignoring the research about meeting versus exceeding expectations. The customer experience researchers at Forrester, who is a leading research and advisory firm, conduct an annual survey of more than 120,000 customers about their most recent experience with companies from a wide range of industries, banks, hotels, automakers, PC manufacturers, and more. One question in a recent survey, which is the U.S. Customer Experience Index of 2016, asked how customers felt about that experience. They rated their emotions on a scale of one to seven, where one reflected a very bad feeling, four was considered neutral, 
and seven was a very good feeling. If you were a service executive, what would you do with the results of this survey question? You probably wouldn't focus on the sevens uh, because they love you and they're happy. But given that everyone else from one to six has room for improvement, who gets the attention? Would you try to fix problems for the ones, the people who have made, or the people who you have made miserable? Or would you try to delight the sixes to nudge them up to a seven? In an ideal world, you do everything at once finding ways to vault everyone to a seven. In our world though, you face trade-offs of time and attention. So which customers would you focus on? Let's simplify the decision a bit and say you had to choose between two different plans. Plan A would magically eliminate all of your unhappy customers, which are those who ranked their experience as one, two, or three, and boost them up to four, which is a neutral feeling. And plan B would instantly vault all of your neutral to positive customers who ranked themselves four, five, and six up to that magic number seven. Which would you choose? We have presented this scenario to dozens of executives who focus on the consumer experience, including leaders from well-regarded brands such as Porsche, Disney, Vanguard, Southwest Airlines, and Intuit, and asked them which plan better described the way their company allocated its time and resources. They estimated on average that their companies spent about 80% of their resources trying to improve the experience of seriously unhappy customers, AKA your one, twos, and threes. That seems reasonable at first glance because they're trying to eliminate the worst customer problems, but as an but as a strategic investment, it's actually considered madness. And here's why. Forrester's researchers have built models of the financial value of a customer. They know from survey responses, for instance, that airline customers who give a seven, which is very positive rating, will spend about $2,200 on air travel over the next year. And a customer giving a rating of a four, which is neutral, on the other hand, will only spend about $800. The equivalent figures for the package shipping industry are $57 and $24 respectively. In other words, the happiest people in the industry tend to spend more. So moving fours to a seven generates more additional spending than moving people from one to a four. Furthermore, there are dramatically more people in the feeling positive zone, which is a score of four to six, rather than feeling negative, which is a score of one to three. 
So with plan B, you are creating more financial value per person and reaching more people at the same time. As a result, choosing plan A and plan B is not a close call. Here's the astonishing finding from the Forrester data. If you elevate the positives, which is choosing plan B, you'll earn about nine times more in revenue than if you just eliminate the negatives, which is choosing plan A. Yet, most executives are pursuing plan A instead. How can leaders prioritize so poorly when so much money is at stake? The truth is, is that you should emphasize with them because we all make the same mistake in different areas of life. Research has shown again and again that we tend to obsess about problems and negative information. Sports fans think more about the games their team lost than those that they've won. In our diaries, we spend more time reflecting on the bad things that happened rather than the good. Negative feedback packs a heavier punch than positive. We obsess about one negative comment and a collection of 10 supportive responses. Researchers at the University of Pennsylvania summarized dozens of studies that pitted negative information against positive. Their conclusion was right in the title of the paper, bad is stronger than good. So when it comes to the way service executives think, it's not surprising that bad is stronger than good. Their attention is naturally drawn to the customers who had the worst experiences. But in indulging that instinct, they miss an enormous opportunity. To be clear, we're not recommending that leaders abandon their efforts to fix big problems. Rather, they should reallocate their attention. There's nine times more to gain by elevating positive customers than by eliminating negative ones. In that process of evaluation of moving customers to a score of seven is not about filling pits or paving potholes. To create fans, you need the remarkable and that requires peaks. Peaks don't emerge naturally. They must be built.